Hey, so before I introduce myself, I just thought I'd introduce this episode as having some spoilers in it. So this is your spoiler warning. Specifically, not just spoilers for Tiffany Aking's Guide to Being a Witch, but two kind of important spoilers for The Shepherd's Crown. If you really don't want to know anything about it before you read it, maybe skip this one for now. I don't remember doing the leg thing. I do remember doing the ear thing. I'm Elizabeth Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we usually discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. But not this month. Instead, we're going to be talking about Tiffany Aching's Guide to Being a Witch. And our guests for this very special interview episode are the authors of that book, Rihanna Pratchett. Hello. And Gabrielle Kent. Hello. Welcome, Rihanna and Gabrielle. How exciting. <laughs> Thank you for having us on. Yeah, very excited to be here. No, it's fun. Usually I make a pun joke about the title of the book, but um, it feels wrong and stressful to do it with the authors there, so I'll do it in a footnote later. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. We've had many authors as guests on the podcast, but never the authors of a book we were talking about. Uh, welcome, welcome. So when was the book first released and how long have you been talking to people like us about it? Mm. It was released on November 9th, and we've been talking about it for a little while now. Our first sort of open air talking about it was a talk at the British Library with Kat Brown interviewing Gabrielle and myself about the book, and that, that was really wonderful. And since then, we did um, a talk at Waterstones Piccadilly, in which Rob interviewed us and tried to make me cry Aww. quite a lot and succeeded quite mm. a lot. Um, we did a, a wonderful signing at uh, The Travelling Man in York, and we were signing for about three hours there. We met some lovely people and lots of Discworld fans, and a lot of uh, sons and daughters buying it for their mums, huh. which we quite liked. That was really sweet. It feels like we've been talking about for ages and that it has been out for ages, but it, it's really just over a month, but um, it's really taken over our lives right now. Does it feel different to? other kinds of publicity tours that you've done for your own books or other work? I've never really done one, so that's probably more towards Gabrielle, really. I wrote Crystal of Storms, but that came out sort of during the pandemic, so it was all sort of from-home stuff, and I spent a long time sort of signing book plates, hmm. and, you know, it was actually good grounding for signing signing the books because I, I learned, like, which bits of furniture I could lay out <laughs> book plates on to like you know sign and sign and sign and then my and then my partner would be like packing them up and stuff and we actually ended up utilizing that system uh on the island in my kitchen and we had the all the books laid out and and my partner Albie was he was unpacking them which was actually the hardest part because a lot of them were quite well secured into their slipcase uh and then lying them out around the island and then Gabrielle and I would start in in two different places 
with our purple pen uh, for me and the green pen for Gabrielle. And then we would just go all the way around. Sometimes we'd be stamping as well, and then Rob would be packing it up. But it was, yeah, it was quite a cottage industry. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like assembling a zine, but on a much more professional level. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had reward donuts. Does this mean that some of the books um, are in slipcovers that they did not originally appear in? Like there's been a bit of hopping around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the slipcovers are, are, are wonderful, and we, but we really hope that maybe somewhere further down the line we'll, we'll be able to do a version that are sort of with, with Paul's beautiful cover on display um, because that's the sort of only downside of the slipcovers is you don't see Paul's illustration, which is so kind of arresting. And don't get me wrong, seeing that the, the you know the black uh, slip cover with the golden witch on is 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 pretty cool. But you know, it actually and it actually feels nice when you pull the the book out of the slip cover. It does have mm. very good very good uh, book feel. That nice it kind is, of yeah, noise. Good, in your mm. hand. It's got good weight to it as well. <laughs> yeah, is that witch seal on the cover? And it's on the it's on the hard cover inside the dust jacket as well. Is that the stamp that Tiffany puts on the cheese? Is that meant to represent that as well as you know, obviously a witch? Yeah, it's it's the uh, well, it's a butter stamp actually. I'm a not butter, sure whether that's she right. the cheese, but yeah, it's the butter stamp. Yeah, I don't think you do stamp cheese, do you? That's a, that seems like a terrible <laughs> <You> idea. Could, <laughs> but it might get angry at you. Horace would yeah. definitely. Horace the cheese would be the cheese that stamps that. <laughs> True. Um, Gabriel, how's how's this felt to you? Is different from when you've been publicising your other books? Uh, definitely. I guess this is my eighth book out now. And people tend not to really do signings anymore unless you're a really big deal. You know, there's times I've turned up to just sign a few books in a shop and there might be you know, a handful of people there and it's just kind of passing trade then. And then to have a queue down the street at Travelling Man and be signing for three hours there was just absolutely insane. And, you know, I have Obviously, it is because this is Discworld and Discworld has such a just a huge number of fans. And and the, I think a lot of people are interested to see what myself and Rihanna have actually done with Discworld. <laughs> but it, it was just incredible. I've never seen anything like that. And the response, just the fans, the passion they have for, for Discworld, they all want to tell us the little Discworld stories of, you know, how they came to Discworld, what it means to them, um, how it's, you know, even change their lives or help them find their partners it's yeah it, it's just amazing to actually get to to meet people and see what this world means to them and you know it'd be lovely if you know, my books could one day you know have that kind of effect but i have yeah it's a disc world is just really something special yeah this is both of your first time publicly writing for this we know that both of you in fact have been working on Discworld things behind the scenes in various ways in your case for a very long time but did it really feel different you know were you nervous about stepping into this you know publicly stepping up and saying well we're going to write for Discworld now oh for sure there's a there's a reason why I chose the golden hair as my stamp and that's because the, the hair runs into the fire so it is a it, you know it's a huge deal but I have my best friend with me and so that helps it you know, a, a, a lot. And it, yeah, actually even more than I thought it was going to. And actually having a, another woman there with you when you're doing the, the, like you're preparing for a signing queue and you're like, you know, you're checking each other's hair, checking you haven't got like a seed stuck between your teeth and that kind of thing. It's, it's very cute and bonding. It's not something that I think Neil and my dad did. 
<laughs> no, sure they did. <laughs> yeah, we were actually sort of picking bits for each other's teeth and grooming each other before. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to note, because you've known each other for a long time now, but did working on something so closely and so collaboratively change your relationship in any way? I think it brought us closer together. We were already pretty close, but we, we got we were sort of speaking several times a day and that sort of kept up pretty much ever since, even though the book is out. Um, and that's, it's a very sisters who actually like each other kind of a friendship. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And, and so we live at opposite ends of the country, uh, really. So we don't, we didn't actually get to see each other in person that often. It might be a few times a year, but we've actually seen each other maybe about six times over the last, uh, sort of six weeks or something which is yeah something that doesn't happen yeah. and yeah we have been in touch yeah, that's been great a lot. yeah yeah I was listening to some of the other interviews and you were talking about the the process of writing it and as I understand it like it all came together pretty quickly like you worked on it for a couple of months the initial writing phase and then you went into sort of the editing uh, and a lot of that was over zoom where you just sort of open a zoom window and and work while the other one was there. Was is that something you'd done before? Or is this something you were trying out as a, a new way of working in partnership? We haven't done that before, but um we have done it a few times since where we've just uh, opened Zoom and just got on with our own thing while each other are there. And it, it kind of, you know, with a very solitary career like writing, it it kind of helps. It almost feels like it's a kind of accountability having someone there while you're working. But it, it was a wonderful process uh, writing like that, just um, being able to see each other's reactions as we were chatting about working in the live documents. And obviously, Neil and Terry back in the, when did Good Omens come out? Was it early 90s, late 80s? 1990. 1990, right. So yeah, they, I mean, we had so The earliest 90s you can get. Yes. (laughs) And we had so much so many new tools available that just um yeah made it feel like we were writing in the same room didn't have to wait for the floppy disk to arrive in the mail <laughs> we didn't <laughs> no we could actually just watch each other working on the book what was an average day like for you so or was there such a thing i'm not sure there was actually such a thing i'm i am i re- something in me rebels against average days so i <laughs> I'm always doing kind of different things and and mixing things up and working on different projects and different mediums. And I'm always got like a a lot of plates spinning and I'm definitely the opposite to my dad in that regard. And he had the ability to be extremely focused from the off and then extremely focused and then all day and then, and, and then stop. Whereas I am, much more sporadically focused so I could focus for short sort of short bursts but for longer so I'll, I'll work later than than dad used to but I, I'll I'll do it in kind of shorter f- focused bursts but in that in between that I'll you know write emails or I play games or I watch things and yeah I'm not I'm not as good at uh, like keeping focus for for um, long periods of time but actually I, I think writing this helped me uh, do that a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, as someone who's been recently diagnosed with ADHD as well, sort of keeping that focus can be difficult. But I felt actually working with Rianne, I work brilliantly actually if I've got a very strict deadline. And luckily, there was a very tight deadline for this. So I had to just get my head down and, and get on with it. So we did have some days where we'd be working separately and just really hammering out text. And then days where we, you know, we were really quite happy 
with what we had and then we'd go in and start um, editing each other's work and well making suggestions and then sort of chatting about things live so um it's a really enjoyable process yeah did you find that because you were talking live while you were doing that did you did you still do because like i know people who've worked on books together they have these like sort of little chains of comments that maybe get slightly snarky about different things they want to change in their in their group document. Did you have anything like that? I know it, it seems like it was mostly very harmonious. You were on the same page. Why don't you tell them what you were snarky about, Gabrielle? <laughs> I knew it. I was just, it wasn't being snarky, but Rihanna no, caught me. It was the nearest we came to snarky. <laughs> I was in one of the documents and I happened to notice that quite a few sentences were starting with and. So I was just highlighting them so that I could count up the number without realising that Ree had kind of sneaked into the document and was watching me highlighting all of the ands. <laughs> I thought that this was like kind of like passive aggressive behaviour. I was like, no, I'm just highlighting them so I can count them and see if there actually is too many or too many cups of nice cups of tea. I think you highlighted them so that we could both count them. <laughs> yeah, but you caught me at that. In fairness, I did reduce the number of ands because that's, yeah, it, it works in a kind of conversational way, but I, I tend to overuse it. And also lots of references to food uh, and particularly tea. Nice cups of tea. Yeah, not that many in the final book that I noticed. So clearly, Gabby, you got your way. You edited them out. <laughs> I do start a lot of sentences with Anne myself, and I've just been finishing some final edits for the second book in my Rani Report series, and I did actually find several mentions of nice cups of tea, uh, Rihanna. I did mean yeah. to actually point that out to you. <laughs> I was very conscious of it, I think, because of all the ones I noticed in Tiffany, which I think some, I probably was responsible for. Gabrielle's actually a much bigger tea drinker than I am. I actually tend towards frou-frou flavoured coffees, but I write about tea a lot. Maybe because I don't drink it. Like maybe it's always in the kind of it's the it's the more exotic beverage in some ways. <laughs> Yorkshire biscuit tea. It's probably because there's a specific amount of tea that you have to have in your life, and if you're not drinking it, you have to sort of get that out in other ways. Yeah, that's true. I think nice cups of tea. It's, it's symbolic, especially when you're British. Tea is symbolic. In a way, coffee isn't quite as much. So maybe that has mm. something to do with it. It's very comforting. Yeah. And the, and the only coffee we really know about on the Discworld is very dangerous to drink too much of. So <laughs> yeah. If you want to calm down, it's got to be tea. All coffee is dangerous to drink too much of. So, <laughs> uh, But you'd say that, you know, you had quite a tight deadline for this book. As I understand the process, the idea for writing the book came from Rob Wilkins and maybe um, was it Alex Stott who did the design layout, was involved in coming up with the concept which they then brought to you was, uh, and I think they brought it to you first, Rihanna. Did, was that a, was that a like a a big deal, or was that like just another project we're talking about at Narrativia, or was that like, wait, you want me to write the book? Um, I I think we've been sort of talking about potentially writing stuff for the kind of wider Discworld collective for a while. I can't remember whether there was any sort of concept art or layout presented to me. I don't think there was. I think it was purely the title and, and Rob and I having a, a chat on the phone. It was very low key. And at the time, Gabrielle was working with me as a kind of writer's assistant and also doing some writing for the website as well on various Discworld topics. 
And so I said, yeah, I'd like to do it, but I'd love to do it with Gabrielle as well. And yeah, Rob thought it was a great idea. So we sort of ended up brainstorming ourselves and then kind of pitching it back to them. Um, Gabrielle, when Rihanna approached you about this, what was that moment like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'd been doing, let's uh, reset, bits of writing for the Discworld website and really enjoying getting into exploring all different aspects of Discworld. Um, but the thought of actually writing a book, uh, like a Discworld book, obviously not a novel, was it, it I mean, it's just insane because it's, it, yeah. Terry Pratchett was absolutely my favourite author. I grew up with Discworld books from the very first one I read back in, it was the late 80s I started reading. So there was only a few of them out then. So I got to grow up and one came out round about my birthday in October every single year. Um, so it was like became a birthday thing. It was a way I connected with my dad when he realised I was reading the same sort of books as him. It was, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, that, that's what inspired me to to become an author myself and to actually slip a book onto my bookshelves between my books and then the Discworld books to perfectly bridge that gap was just, yeah, it was uh, quite an emotional experience. I bet. We've talked a little bit about how the book came to being in real life, but the book itself is a meta-narrative that is in its world, authored by Tiffany Aching herself. So I just wanted to ask, within the world that you've created, how did her book come about? Um, I think she is a little bit of a, a research witch in some ways, Tiffany. So she, she actually embodies uh, a number of the kind of witch roles we've talked about. So she is an edge witch, but she's also, you know, she, she leans towards quite, uh, you know, a little researchy, you know, she, she, uh, read all the books in, in the very small library. You know, she read the, the dictionary from, from A to Z. And so, yeah, she, she has a, a sort of tendency towards that anyway. And she seemed like the kind of person that would journal, would write things down, would kind of make notes. And, you know, we've seen her taking on, a, you know, apprentice in, in the form of Jeffrey Swivel and kind of working with other young magical practitioners like the Coven, uh, like Amber Petty. Um, so it felt like she was kind of at a stage where she'd want to kind of impart her experience and, and the experience of others in, in a kind of more formal way. And, you know, I imagine maybe, maybe Nanny Og might have, might have kind of helped nudge her in that direction and possibly, uh, Miss Tick as well. But it felt like a kind of a Tiffany thing to do. It did. And there were things Tiffany struggled mm. with herself, um, shamble making in particular. And you know, I like the idea that you know, she'd be wanting to help future witches out with areas like that. So, um, yeah, we were thinking a lot while writing, you know, why is Tiffany writing? Who is she, she writing this for? When was it written? And so it's, she obviously started writing it earlier in her career and continued to write it until after the events, obviously, of uh, The Shepherd's Crown. So, yeah, if you'll notice, uh, a spoiler's okay on the, on the podcast, or are we avoiding? <laughs> on this episode, yes. <laughs> we have, it is the one of the witch's books that we haven't talked about yet, but we'll, we'll warn. We'll, we'll, right. We've warned you, listener. So if you're at this point of the podcast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you'll notice there's some things that Granny Weatherwax might have 
commented on if she were around to do that. Um, obviously, Jeffrey came in after to gra- after Granny's passing, um, so she wouldn't really have anything to say on his particular chapters. So we could only say through the words of the other witches, you know, what Granny may have thought of, of Tiffany's decisions there. So yeah, it was interesting thinking about which points in because it, she wouldn't have necessarily written it in consecutive order the way the book is presented. She'd have dipped in and out of the chapters. So we were trying to keep in mind which parts of her career she might be writing different parts of the book in. Yeah, I think you did a great job of capturing that. Like there's parts, and this is partly because you're also drawing on the source material, but you know, oh. there's bits early on that feel like younger Tiffany. Like when you, you have that joke about her looking up the definition of strumpet, which is still one of my favorite gags, uh, where, you know, she finds out it means woman of easy virtue and thinks that means Nanny Og must find virtue very easy. So she's amazingly <laughs> virtuous. Um, which is, you know, something that by the time of I shall wear midnight and the shepherd's crown, you would not imagine. Tiffany making that mistake or misunderstanding that anymore. Um, But yeah, it feels like we're going on this journey with her and it reminds us of the journey she goes on through the books too. I thought that was really lovely that you kept that stuff in. Oh, and I love her spill words, like just a little, because like every time I read one of her books and she has to like deal with a lot of people's nonsense and just sort of like wear it, I get angry on her behalf. So the fact that she gets a little bit angry on her behalf, um, I found very heartening. <laughs> we did have fun with It's not a question, it's just a statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did have fun with those. At one point, I was saying to Rhi, oh, I'm not sure, do we take these out? But uh, Rhi was like, nope, these are, these need to stay in. And then Rhi was, um, you know, wrote quite a number of, the, it was great. It was all our little passive-aggressive uh, comments about the, <laughs> the other witches. We got our passive aggression out in spill words on Tiff's behalf. Yeah, I did really love that. The passive aggressiveness in the book does seem to be mostly between let us see a wig and Tiffany aching um, and a, li- a little bit towards Anna Grammer, who's not in the book really very much. It's just occurred to me, was that a real definite decision? You were like, we're just going to leave her out of it a lot. Like she's obviously she's directly left out of the portrait of the coven for hilarious reasons explained in a note, but then she doesn't seem to come back in too much apart from sort of some passing references. Was that a, a deliberate decision? I mean, not deliberate, you know, we just didn't feel the need to put her in too much, I guess. I mean, I guess because Anna Grammer is in some ways like a junior lettuce earwig. (laughs) And so I think we kind of focused on lettuce a little bit more. And, you know, there are, Anna Grammer definitely comes out in in Tiffany's spill words Mm. and... I, I'm not quite sure why Paul didn't put her in, but it, well, we actually retroactively came up with a reason because we realised she wasn't in there. Oh, right. And, yeah. and then we were like, oh, I wonder why that went, where, if we could put a good in-world explanation why she wouldn't be there. And it, it, it actually worked perfectly, like as perfect as if we, you know, we decided to tell him not to put her in in the first place. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, we many many witches get kind of name checked, and you know, some that like Hilta, uh, Goat Founder, you know, gets name checked, and a lot of ones that we've not kind of heard from for a while, or they come from the witches books. And you know, we did a few things like uh, Miss Level now has a first name, which she never had in the in the books, and we yeah, we were trying to sort of touch upon as many witches as we could, but there were a few that we kind of focused on. A little, a little bit more, uh, but, and and the grammar is good fun. But yeah, I think we sort of leaned leaned a little bit heavier on lettuce. 
And how did you choose Miss Level's first name? Like, did you come up with a shortlist? Did you use that app that people use when they're coming up with a baby name and they can veto them? Or like, how did that go about? No, I just looked at her and I thought, yeah, she looks like a Constance. And that's was yeah, it was like that. I, I'm sorry, there's not more science behind it, but it was just like, yeah, that's kind of how she looks like. I I was wondering about this because you know she she has two bodies. Did she only ever use one like given name, or do you think she had like a second given name for when she had two bodies that were posing as two different people? That's a good question. I am not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hand this over to my co-author. <laughs> I guess she is one person, really. So I imagine they both would be Constance Level um, rather than, yeah. Constant. Yeah, because it is um, mm. yeah, the one one personality with the two bodies. So, yeah, I guess we would stick with the one name. But it's an interesting question. <laughs> Yeah, which I think um, kind of brings you to, I, I was wondering what your approach to continuity was with the book because like, I know that he did he did an awful lot of research and there's some great connections that you draw and, um, from the books that are the kind of stuff that because, you know, they were coming out several years apart and you often there's a bit of time between reading them. When you read the books, you don't put those things together. Like like the thing with the cat, you, which I thought was amazing when I heard you explain it. I was like, I, that never, I did never pick that up. Um, but did you did you feel like you really had to, because it seems always that Terry's attitude to continuity was it's not as important as a good joke or a good story. And I wonder if that was your attitude as well or whether you felt because, you know, you were working with his creations that you had to stick a bit more to what he had established Oh God! then maybe he would have. Yeah, I, I felt like we really had to get it right. So there was a, a lot of digging. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's amazing how he kept things straight through 41 books absolutely incredible and this couple of little continuity things we found while we were going through but very few considering the number of books I tend to write three book series and I find it really difficult to keep things straight across just three books um, so there was an awful lot of digging to make sure we got things right um, like right the way back through not even the witches books. Um, there's mentions of witches like um, uh, Granny Whitlaw in some of the wizard books. And so we had to kind of go and find those references and piece them together. And the reference to Marchesa, the wizard on the island of Krull that uh, Rincewind mm. meets in is it Colour of Magic or Light Fantastic. There are fans that will immediately know this. But we hadn't actually even thought of that. So we were writing about Esk as the first uh, witch wizard. And it was Alex Stott we were chatting to that mentioned Marchessa. And um, so we went back and was like, oh, yes, Marchessa. So we thought actually a perfect way to bring that in would be through a very passive aggressive comment th- from Letty Seawig, um, who would know this through her wizard husband. Um, yeah, so we decided that Rincewind probably did some travel writing about his explorations with Two Flower, and that's how <laughs> Letty's Ewig ended up knowing about Marchessa and put in that passive aggressive comment. So there was th- all of this thinking going behind just these tiny little segments of the book. Bits as well where I suddenly realised that Tiffany briefly mentions studying under Mistress Polunda and Old Mother Dismas as mm. well, which I hadn't realised. And we were like, oh no, right? So she actually had apprenticeships under those two witches as well, which are just very briefly mentioned in passing. So we ended up exploring those. and We ended up with some great pedigree earthworm drawings uh, through that. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that earthworm. Oh, so cool. I found it a little bit frightening, but that's um, (laughs) cool frightening. (laughs) Uh, How did it work with the illustrations, though? Because they fit together so seamlessly. How did you, like, which came first or was it simultaneous, like, in the production of the book? Um, I guess, you know, a little bit, uh, some of the artwork, because Paul has drawn a lot of the witches before came from previous illustrations but there is a lot that's original for the book Mm. and you know possibly ones that Paul had drawn a while ago but hadn't been used or there were sketches for certain things but by and large the words came sort of first and then Paul was I think actually the the ideas came first we did a spreadsheet of the chapters and we, we kind of had a column for these are some of the images that we think will be good to have in this chapter. So I think Paul was away kind of working on those while we were writing on things. And then Paul actually came back to us at one point and go, oh, I really, I'd really like to draw Grimhounds or Biting Phase or, or Dromes. Can you put them in? So I, I did kind of like almost a whole chapter of things Paul wanted to draw, which was a lot of the, the kind of the fairyland creatures from We Free Men. That's how I think of that chapter as uh, basically stuff Paul wanted to draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The layout of the book, I think, is a real, um, not, I, I was going to say undersung, but I don't think that's true. I think I think you have talked about it a bit, but I, the, it's just so wonderful the way that, you know, some pages feel like they are the page of this book that we've discovered from the disc world. And particularly like the little notes, which are either pinned in or Je- lovely little detail I, I really liked was Jeffrey's ones are nailed in <laughs> to the book somehow. <laughs> so sometimes it feels like we're reading the published book and sometimes it feels like we're reading a, a manuscript that's still being worked on. And that's amazing work that I think was Alex Stock did that as a designer. But I also know you had some input into that, like including like what happens in the pets chapter. Is that right? Um, Sort of. Like we we gave feedback on the layout at various points and sort of said, oh, we could put this in here. We could kind of move that around. It was more kind of general feedback, I think. Yeah, just sort of going over things and kind of making notes. So we did make notes on the layout specifically and a lot about page architecture and, and being aware of how to balance the pages and things like that. So you weren't getting pages without any kind of visual stimulus on them and you know I don't think I'm not even sure if there's any pages that don't have something on them even if it's just like a little you know chalky or blue butterfly or something like that um and yeah so some of the work was kind of balancing that out but yeah it's you know largely down to to Alex's skill and you know he he was kind of our editor for this and yeah he he was great to work with. Mm. As it was coming back each time, the pages were just getting more and more beautiful every time we saw it. And um, there were just gasps at some moments. Um, I loved the page with uh, Brian, the uh, shop assistant at Zack Zack Strong in the Arms. You've got Brian there looking a bit like a kind of young sardonic rinse wind with his cup of tea. So you've got Brian the wizard, Brian the frog, and then Brian, the sack of um, <laughs> the pink balloon. Balloon of spare Brian. Yeah. Exactly, all the extra Brian in there. <laughs> it was just a brilliant page. I love that. Such a story in that. That was amazing. I'm just looking at it now. It's such a fleshy page. 
It is, yeah. It's mostly a very beautiful book. And then occasionally there's just one or two things that are like, oh, and also it's quite grotesque <laughs> in some oh, yeah. parts, <laughs> which I think is quite important in a children's book, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I had uh, Butterfly Ball. I don't know if you ever saw Butterfly Ball, which is um, – Oh yeah. Hey, I know. We haven't had this talk, Gabrielle. Yeah, like yeah, that was a great. Book. You had butterfly ball as well. Yeah. You know, the, here's a strain factoid for you. So they were going to make a movie of the butterfly ball, and um, they only ended up animating the one song, and they kind of released that as sort of like a music video. And they used to play the animation of that regularly on ABC television in Australia in between other shows because it was sort of just the right length to buffer it. So I think there's a whole generation of people probably around our age in Australia who know that song very, very well. I don't know how many of us like me went on to go and find where it was from and listen to the whole album, but uh, yeah. And um, I haven't read the book, but I'm familiar with it. It's so good. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have to go and look that up. Oh, yeah, please do. And the, the album's amazing and the animation is gorgeous. Is it full of bugs and creepy crawlies? Yeah, yeah, there's creepy crawlies in there. Um, I think it's mostly the frog, but like the voice talent on the album is phenomenal. It's like, I think it's Ronnie Dio singing that song, if I remember rightly, but it's, yeah, well worth checking out if you you love the book. Need to look that up. And what a great inspiration. Uh, What other things were inspirations for the book? Obviously, you know, it's mostly inspired by the other Discworld books, but both of you had long careers and you've had so many things influencing your work. Was there anything else that you sort of drew on when working on this book? I remember when we started talking about it, Alex uh, said, have you seen uh, The Jedi Path and is Way of the Sith, the other one? I was like, yes. Pulled them straight off my shelf, which are uh, these kind of Star Wars books, which um, have all of the comments in from yeah, all of the different characters, even including Ahsoka Tano and Luke chipping in with comments in the margins. So I think Alex really loved the way those books were presented. So we had a look through those. Um but uh I mean I, I guess there's sort of everything everything you read becomes an influence on you. Is there anything in particular that you were bearing in mind, Ree? Oh, um uh, just Pratchett life. Yeah. <laughs> just growing up uh in the Pratchett household and, and having goats in the front garden and chickens and ducks in the back and learning to milk goats and kind of grow vegetables and you know, both of us have grandmothers who were shepherdesses. Which is weird, weird connection that I don't think we'd fully realised until we wrote this book. And yeah, a lot of the kind of rural scape of the, the round tops and the chalk are taken from places Dad grew up as a boy and also uh, Somerset where we lived until I was 16 and Wiltshire where my grandmother lived and, and we later moved to. So there's a, there's sort of, yeah, just general kind of Pratchett DNA woven in there as well. Does that mean that the thing about goats where you have to become like the dominant goat in order to be able to control them is true? Like, and the, if it is true, yeah. yeah. If I ever find myself in a situation, like, you have to do the leg thing. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, well, it's the ear thing. I, do, I think possibly the like, I don't remember doing the leg thing. I do remember doing the ear thing. <laughs> Uh, or my, uh, certainly my mum doing the ear thing, but it's it's well the the leg thing is about embarrassing them, and mm. the ear thing is is sort of asserting dominance, but also kind of confusing them at the same time. <laughs> and like it doesn't hurt them because they've you know goats, especially Toggleburgs, which we had, they've got ears like you know a doormat, um, <laughs> and 
Yeah, they, but it's how goats establish who is head goat. They just sort of have a little a little bite of the ear and it, it, it sort of cal- it calms them down. But yeah, when you're kind of freeze it, it's in the freezing cold and you're trying to milk a goat that's, you, you know, kind of continually stepping in the milk bucket. Sometimes you've just got a kind of like, yeah, <laughs> a search your dominance as, as head goat. So that is taken from real life. And yeah, I, we had goats until I was about sort of between eight and 10 and they were hard work. They were really hard work um, because there's the milking and then you have to walk them usually to their own, to their field. And then, then they spend time in the field and they go and collect them at the end of the day, walk them back on leads, kind of uh, like dogs. They're quite smart. They're quite stubborn. They can be quite grumpy. They can be quite jealous. I was actually trampled by a goat when I was about two or three. Oh my I was kind of walking along between my parents, like holding their hands and that the goat got jealous and it just kind of charged me. Oh, um, uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, they are grumpy buggers, uh, but they've also, they've got, they make nice noises. They've got a nice smell. They've got like nice noses and ears. I've got a lot of time for goats. They've got cool eyes. Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, like I, I, I was on holiday for a little weekend in the Cotswolds, and I'd not seen a goat for a long time. And uh, they had a few goats kind of milling around, and I looked in their eyes, and it was yeah, it was like being uh, going back in time. Yeah, it feels like they're scrutinising. Yeah, it sounds like there was an element of that kind of time travel for you in the book as well, like going back and, and drawing on all these memories of, you know, your growing up life to inform the book in much the same way as Terry would have used his own life to inform the books when he was writing them. Did you have anything like that, Gabriel? Did this bring any memories of your childhood um, growing up and learning? Like I know you've talked about you had quite a witchy grandmother who wasn't just a shepherdess. Yeah. Um, I say just, that's a, that's a huge job. <laughs> I don't want to belittle that job. Sorry. Oh, no. Um, I mean, I guess on my mother's side, so my Irish granny, Granny Dempsey, um, she was quite a kind of granny aching type. That's the, the shepherdess sort of farmer grandmother. And then my English grandmother was, she was a right nanny og. <laughs> she, she was brilliant. Such a kind of dirty sense of humor and very cheeky. And she would, um, she managed, um, a series of kind of like sheltered accommodation for um, elderly, uh, typically single people. And she would do the rounds, it was called, which was basically, I've realized doing the rounds was pretty much my gran going around the houses. And she would take me with her and would go around and um, visit all of the elderly people just for a chat, a cup of tea. Um, usually I'd get a glass of ancient lemonade or something that they'd had in their cupboards for, for God knows how long. <laughs> mold floating on the top of some of them <laughs> and uh yeah she'd check that they were okay she'd cut their toenails even and there's mentions of cutting toenails um in the book and they would actually give claws as well so i came away with um i just ended up with the, you know, really really retro claws they'd give me claws that had belonged to their children or um grandchildren so um i had a bizarre wardrobe made of um really odd 
items that I was given by these um, elderly ladies. But yeah, that was, that very much felt like a Discworld experience going around the houses with my English gran. And then the rural side of things when I went over to Galway for the summer and helped out um, on granny's farm, getting chased by geese and uh, yeah. My uncle getting frustrated with me for not knowing how to herd cows at one point. As though, doesn't everyone learn how to to herd cows? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was. Yeah, I did get to draw on all of those experiences in writing. Bit of a strange question from me. Um, as I made my way through this book, there's a like it's a lot of fun. Like first and foremost, it's a lot of fun, but there's a lot of darker stuff in there as well as, I guess, lessons and. Would you think it's fair to say that to some degree this is a self-help book? Because I came away from it at the end being like, oh, I'm actually, I'm all right. I don't have to be exactly like everyone else. That's fine. Oh, that's good. I really like that, um, yeah, that you got that from it. And and there is, it's, I think as we were writing, we were just analysing all of the lessons that there were to be learned like from the wisdom of Discworld and and. Yeah, it, it's things that felt very relevant uh, to us as well. So we almost put it into a that kind of form where, it, you know, hopefully parts of it would be of comfort to people because I know people do draw a lot of comfort from the disc world. I think, you know, it feels like a safe place to, um, to revisit, I think, for a lot of people uh, when they're a bit down or they just want you know, a world that feels like a cosy blanket to pull around them. Um, so it was fun to actually pull out the wisdom of that world and put it into a format people could easily draw upon. One thing I was really interested in is that you both worked a lot in video games. You know, that's what you were most famous for for a long time. And you've written some really big games, like when you worked on Tomb Raider and stuff. And Gabriel, you've worked on a lot of video games as well uh, as an artist and then also as a consultant. And I, I just wondered how this compared to some of the work you do, particularly on a big video game, because really, you know, you were the lead writer for those um, Tomb Raider reboots, and there's so much text. Like that's an enormous amount of writing to do, and a lot of it is. Like I, I heard you say in some other interviews that you're a little nervous showing your prose writing to Gabrielle because you felt like that wasn't a kind of writing you'd done as much of. But you have written heaps of prose for things like letters and lore and all that kind of stuff in the background of video games. And I'm just wondering, did you find there any similarity between those two processes where you're drawing from all these, you know, sources and like, cause Tomb Raider and a lot of the, the games you've worked on, um, you've worked on your own IP, but there's some that you've worked on that belong to other people before. I'm just wondering if there was any parallel or, or similarity in the process between those things. Hmm. Not that I was immediately aware of. I think with um novel writing it's always felt a bit more grown up to me from possibly because my father did it um and so it was seen from an early age as a grown-up thing to do because like you know one of the main grown-ups in my life did it uh and it's always seemed a grown-up thing to do and it still seems a grown-up thing to do even having done it um <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of not sure why maybe it's because it's to do with that back to that focus again so i i kind of always felt that you needed that you know consistent focus to you know write novels or or anything close to novels and you know i i felt i maybe didn't have the the same focus that my my father did to be able to do them but then i sort of realized that actually you can do it in in you know bursts rather than kind of um uh, you know, long marathons of time, you can kind of do short sprints, which tends to be my way of, of doing it. So 
Yeah, because Gabrielle has done um, you know, multiple uh, wonderful novels in the past. I was a bit kind of hesitant to kind of show my workings to her. Um, but yeah, we all we kind of both settled into it very comfortably and very easy, I think. Cool. You've got Lettuce Earwig with her notes all the way through because she basically feels slighted that she hasn't been consulted on this book because she's got all of this knowledge. But I found her perspective very interesting throughout because I'd say 90% of the time she is peevish and irritated and just bringing up stuff that's not relevant. But then there's the one you raised earlier where she has a genuine point that is important information for the book that this is. But I was wondering if any of her, like, again, in the world of the book, her notes got taken in because in the sorcerer section, she mentions that the wizard celibacy thing is not true. It's to prevent making sorcerers. And on the page before, that's also noted in the text of the book. So like in the world of the book, have editors actually listened to her note and incorporated it into the text? (laughs) (laughs) You got your editor brain turned on there, Liz. Yes, I am an editor. I should probably put that out there as well. Yeah, I'd have to actually go back through the book to see who it was. Who was it that commented in the text other than uh, Lettuce on Salabisi being made up by wizards? Was it Tiffany comment or was it a granny comment? Page six. Yeah, I quite, one of the things I really liked about that bit is that there's like several different like sort of opinions there because, you know, there's what's in the main text. Nanny Og's got an opinion. Granny's got an opinion. Lettuce Ewig's got an opinion. And the the funnest part for me is that Nanny and Lettuce Ewig kind of agree. <laughs> They're both like, there's nothing wrong with mixing sex and magic. I just, although while you're looking that up, I will say the one thing that got me consistently is every time Lettuce Ewig insisted on spelling magic with a capital K, <laughs> that was, that got me every time. Reed does actually a really good job of uh, pronouncing the K when she, uh, so Rihanna reads Lettuce's comments in the audiobook, which does an absolutely fantastic job of it. And Gabrielle wrote Lettuce's words as well, so it was a nice kind of, you know, team effort on the uh, audible version. It's delightful. I know that um, you've said that Miss Tick in the book has been drawn to look like Indira Varma, who we're all big fans of. It's amazing. Reads the uh, the Tiffany and the Witches books and this book in audiobook form. Do you did you have any input into what the characters would look like, or was that all Paul? Because I know there's a couple of others where you've gone. Oh, I think that looks like such and such a person. Oh, um, some was us, some was down to Paul. Uh, I mean, Constance Level looks pretty much like Joan Hickson, who played uh, Miss Marple in the the black and white version of Miss Marple, and I think that's a perfect look for her. Anyway, back to the Lettuce's opinion question. I just kind of love the, like, because it feeds into the meta narrative for me, like, because she is, like, trying to get her notes in there and then there is that. So I just kind of really love that as a sort of bolstering yeah, of the meta narrative. I think that had actually gone in before I actually um, wrote Lettice's notes were actually quite a, a sort of last minute addition to the book. They're probably among the last things uh, written and slipped in. But that's how we imagined the notes were done. It's, uh, so I imagined that she was quite slighted. She didn't get a copy of the book. And um, 
it's quite clear that she hasn't commented on absolutely everything. So she doesn't have all of the pages because, you know, she would have absolutely commented on everything. Um, so I had this idea yeah. that um, the manuscript was gone back and forth between different witches. There may have even been a couple of copies of it. And she ended up wrestling Grebor, trying to get it out of Nanny Og's uh, letterbox. <laughs> and so just came away, luckily with all her fingers intact, but just uh, a handful of pages from the book. So what she's had is what she's uh, what she's actually commented on. Um, so, so you know, this is obviously not in the book, but uh, it just mentions that she managed to avail herself of a few pages. But we did have it in mind that that's how she availed herself of those pages. Went to sneak out the letterbox, but found Grebo on the other side. <laughs> that's oh, delightful. I, love that. I love the whole meta narrative aspect to it. It's it's just great. <laughs> yeah. In the British Library talk, you mentioned there's a there's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy pun in the book, which I have not yet found. I hope that I will recognise it when I do find it. Are there any other little Easter eggs that you want to tease for people who are reading the book? Ooh. There hmm. probably is. I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of little things in there that were just from tiny references we found um, in other books. But, you know, I'd probably even find it quite impossible to pull them out now. But I do hope that fans enjoy doing that. Uh, but, yeah, the amount of research, the amount of delving we did, you will find that most things we've written do reference even tiny, tiny little events in the book. So. But that specific Easter egg, I'm not sure we did anything exactly like that again. Rihanna was very proud of that. Um, you were waiting for me to find it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I felt uh, I heard Dad chuckling at that one in the back of my head. <laughs> did you actually, on just on that question about the research, did you use any of the fan sources? Like, you know, the, there's like fan wikis and, and all that kind of stuff. And there's the companions that um, Stephen Briggs worked on with Terry. Did you use any of that stuff or did you decide, no, we're just going to go back to the original source and look at the original books? We did. did yeah, I mean, we went back to the original books. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we did. There were times when you know, we could dip in that. And it's amazing that fans have created those level of resources. But the actual books were always our you know, main port of call. And um, the great thing is if you buy the Kindle versions of them, we were able to open got 11 Amazon tabs for all of the witches books. And if you click, if you've got the Kindle version, you can click read now um, and then have all 11 books open at once. And then you can search for specific words. So if we wanted to look something in particular up, I mean, there was one point where I went through, you know, every single Discworld book um, with particular searches, um, trying to find out information about various witches and events. One thing that's very annoying is headology is not a searchable word. So I was thinking, I went through the first three books. I was, hang on a minute. I'm sure headology is mentioned in every one of the Tyranny books, except maybe the first. So that was quite annoying. I had to do a lot more work on pulling out all of the previous references of headology. Uh, that I'm very familiar with that process, doing research for the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we've got quite a few listener questions. We might not get to all of them, but thank you to everyone who sent them in. So let's start with this one from Molokov via Discord. Which of the commentators, so Granny, Nanny, Miss Tick, Rob, anybody, and Mrs. Earwig, are you most like personality-wise? And then did that make them easier to write funnier sides for? Ooh. Hmm. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think both 
Gabrielle and I are kind of sliding into our nanny yog eras. We're trying to embrace them as early as possible, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely nanny yogi in the boots department. Um, I, I do a uh, good line in provocative boots. I think there's a little bit, I, you know, Gabrielle is so uh, good with her research as well. I think there's a little bit of a, a, a mystic kind of research witch in there as well. But there's a little bit, I think there's a little bit of each of us in all of them. Even Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I found whenever I was, um, yeah, there were sections where I was writing bits where I was trying to get across a great deal of pathos and I found Rihanna um, as Nanny Og trying to sort of drop in. I was trying to push Nanny Og out of some of these chapters around. I was like, don't worry, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to bathos all of your pathos, but Nanny won't let that particular <laughs> comment go. So, so she would just drop in as Nanny Og now and then. Um, you really lent into your inner Og. I mean, we both did, but you really did. I mean, to be fair, it's very much my outer Og these days. <laughs> Oh, that was one of my favourite gags in the book too. When uh, when Nanny talks about, don't forget your outer og. Look after your outer og as well. If you're nearby, drop by. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. And I mean, while we're on the topic of Nanny Og, um, we had another question from Hundred Mauser Townsend via Instagram. Uh, okay, I try my very best to decipher Nanny's scribbled out note on page twenty two, and I can't figure it out. Please, what does it say? I'm no wee hag. I can take it. And I confess, I did spend a lot of squinting time trying to read it. So. Is there something scribbled out or is it too salacious to share? Do, now, do we be honest here with the, so uh, we don't actually know what is said there because Alex mm. oh, um, wow. wrote that uh, and we've tried to actually decipher uh, <laughs> what he says as well um, because, yeah, I, I I think he was leaning a little bit into his uh, inner rock as well. So so he did write something there um, and then, yeah, made it, completely obliterated it. So it's, uh, I think it will remain forever a secret. <laughs> All right. So our next question comes from Craig via Discord. Um, and this is a simple but complicated one. What's your favourite word? Word? Ooh. Mm. This well-related word or just word in general? Any word. Word in general. Yeah. It's a big question, isn't That's it? That's a terrible question to ask a writer. Like yeah. your, your mind <laughs> splinters in like a million, billion different directions. Like all of them. All of them. You're on an island. You can only say one word ever again, and it is this oh. one. I guess it's because Tiffany has uh, Susurus as her favoured word, doesn't she, in the, the first book. Really, yeah. that just popped into my head. I was thinking, why has that popped into my head as a favourite word? And I think it's, yeah, it's because it's Tiffany's. Do I have a favourite? Um, I might need to come back to that because um, my brain has suddenly said, words, what are words? And I've forgotten every beautiful <laughs> word that I know. <laughs> Iridescent is always a, a nice word, but mm. I don't particularly use it much. Hmm. See, mm. My brain went to like, maybe an ugly word is the way to go because it gives you more to think about. If a word is beautiful, you can enjoy it on that level. But if a word is like hideous, there's a lot of ways to dig into that. So like, for example, maybe I would choose fecund because it is, you know, I don't love it as a word. It sounds like too much more um, R rating on our, our podcast words. Um, <laughs> it does, yeah. yeah. You can enjoy thinking about it while hating how it sounds. Mm. I like crepuscular. Mm, that is mm. a great word. Yeah. It's very onomatopoeic. 
Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't say it's a favourite, but I can't, yeah, I can't choose favourites of anything, but it's just a nice, mm. um, it's a nice word. It is, it is a lot, I think, with favourite words, it's a lot about the mouthfeel. You know, mm. like I quite like succinct is a great word just because it's it feels nice to say the word. I think crepuscular's got a bit of a bit of that as well. Mm. I sometimes wonder if Terry called moist von Lipvig uh, moist because it's such a, a hated word <laughs> by people, and he's forcing everyone to actually think of the word moist <laughs> for a significant amount of time in those books. I do enjoy every time we get to refer to the moist books on the podcast. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I have dropped one of them in the bath before, so, I mean, some, there's an extra one in that list then. All right, Ben, do you want to choose one? Because I've actually used up all my decision-making trying to come up with a word. Oh, no, fair enough. Well, this is one from Purple Witch on Mastodon. Was there a lot of role-playing and collaboration on everything or a mixture. And I think, I think what they mean by that is how much of it was the two of you sort of going back and forth about a thing and how much did you sort of write bits on your own and then come and talk about them together? Hmm. We had a main writer for each chapter and then the other one would kind of come in and edit and add their own stuff. And there was a couple of points, um, particularly sort of in, in the outro and uh, where we sort of combined forces and we wrote them together. Well, one of us did a bit and then the, uh, the other one kind of added bits as well. Initially, we kind of divided up the chapters and by by large stuck to them. There occasionally, I think there were more chapters added um, along the mm. way, like the Fiegels got their own chapter, um, which wasn't originally planned, but there was so much to, to say about them that we, we felt that they deserved their own chapter. I always say that I had a tendency towards the kind of what I, I think are the possibly more lighter subjects, like, you know, attire, companions and things like that. But then I kind of found the the kind of more serious side of those uh, elements. And whereas Gabrielle, I think, went towards the kind of more serious things and kind of found the lighter side of them. Mm. Mm. I think the only chapter we seemed to write together was um, equipment. I think we took quite a few things each in equipment and um, perils and... Yeah, I think some yeah. Occasionally things got moved between chapters. Mm. We would think, oh, this would be better for you, kind of your chapter, and then we'd just sort of pass it across and things like that. Yeah. And as for role-playing on um, the witches, I think we both wrote all of the, the witches who were writing in the margins, didn't we? We both took on Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax and Miss Tick at various points. There wasn't one of us in particular that was one of the margin witches. We were both margin witches, and I think we managed to be fairly consistent with the tones of voice there. Oh, yeah. So our next question comes from Sven by Discord. Um, this one's for Rihanna. What was your favourite universe to write for? Tomb Raider, Overlord, or Discworld? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Sven. I have to say Discworld, Choose your favourite this as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have to say uh, Discworld, but I really enjoyed working for the Overlord world as well. You know, I, I wrote, I was the only writer for all those games and they were great fun. Um, and there are not enough games that allow you to, to kind of be funny and uh, there should be more of them. And yeah, so I really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, they are. If you haven't played listener, the Overlord games are very funny. Um, although it's a little harder to play these days because I think they're all for older platforms, aren't they? There hasn't been one for a little while now. 
Yeah, I'm I'm still in touch with the the developers, but um, the IP is owned by Codemaster, so people do kind of pop up and say when is there going to be a next one. But it, Codemasters own the IP; the developers don't. Yeah, so it's, it's down to Codemasters who've who've shown little interest in it, unfortunately. But it was it was a really fun game to work on. I really got on well with Trump Studios and um, our voice actors, especially Mark Silk, uh, who voiced Noel. Great work. And yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So maybe I'll come back one day, but I, I don't hold out a lot of hope. I feel like we should be fair and ask Gabrielle this question to you because you've also written a series of books based on the Knights and Bikes video game, which is one of the cutest things I've ever seen. It's so good. Um, I haven't played it yet. I really want to, but I've watched videos of it and I'm like, this is the cutest video game that exists. Like, look at these kids going around on their bikes. It's so great. Mm-hmm. Um, was that how was how was how was that working on that as a as somebody else's IP and, and writing a book about that? Yeah, um, I, I guess that was good preparation for this. But uh, yeah, the Knights and Bikes project was great. I mean, it's I'd seen the game on Kickstarter and I'd actually backed it on Kickstarter because I thought, oh, amazing! Two girls set in the nineteen eighties. There's a one of them is South Asian, and uh, you know, my husband's South Asian, so our daughter's dual heritage. And like, there's hardly any South Asians in video games. It's just, it, it's shocking. So I'd immediately backed this. And then oh, I had my daughter. So <laughs> I backed it while I was pregnant with my daughter uh, back in 2017. And then it was straight after she was born, I was asked to write the tie-in book for the Knights and Bikes series. So I actually had 10 weeks to write it while my daughter was... Um, yeah, she was about 10 or 11 weeks old when I started writing it. It was a mad wow. experience. I don't know why I did it. I think I did it because the game looks so good. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was absolutely mad to write. And I think the madness comes out in it. But it was such a great world to work with. And I had all of the amazing artwork of Rex Crowley, who's the you know, the artist to the art director on it. So it had all of that amazing artwork to inspire me as I was writing, and it really, really helped. But, I mean, Discworld, the amount of art and everything that exists, the, the Discworld is just incredible. Um, and I'm a very visual person. Visuals really, really helped me uh, to write. Um, so there was just, like, infinite resources um, there for me when writing. So, yeah, I mean, I... I adored the nights and bikes process and I got to be really, really silly with that. And there's a, you can see a lot of the, the lack of sleep through having a newborn as well coming through in nights and bikes. But Discworld, I mean, God, I could never have ever imagined I'd be you know, writing a book set in the Discworld. So, you know, it, it's got to be that for me. That's just, you know, kind of top life goals right there. <laughs> Life goals I never even knew I had. It was just a yeah something I <laughs> never even imagined could have happened. So, I mean, obviously that is always going to be my favourite there. That's fair. I kind of want to ask a version of a thing that a lot of people asked us, and I know you get asked the question a lot, which is a lot of people wanted to know, are you going to write any more Discworld books? Will there be more novels? And will there be more video games? Will there be more films? And Previously, I know that, Rihanna, you particularly answered that we'd love to do those sorts of things, but, you know, it's complicated, there's rights issues, and the, and the right project has to come up, like it has to feel right. And I'm just, I'm interested in knowing what is it about a pitch for a game or a film or any other project that makes it feel right to you? 
for the disc world? Are there particular qualities that you look for? And Gabriel, you might be able to weigh in this too, because you now you've worked on one uh, and you've been working behind the scenes. I'm sure you have ideas about this too, but what is it about a project that would make it right? Um, I think it's a lot about um, understanding the tone of the world and how how to get gameplay to intersect with the tone of the world. And that actually, that's why I think um, adventure games work quite well for Discworld because they're more story heavy, they're more character heavy, um, and you know they have a, a kind of slower pace. If you're doing an action game, well, it doesn't really sit well with the Discworld books because they're, you know, they're not heavy on action or action based characters. So I think, yeah, the story world works nicely. You could do something along the lines of what Telltale did with um, say the walking dead or the wolf among us, that kind of episodic with tiny little action segments for characters that might have a, you know, a a burst of, of kind of action at certain points. But yeah, it's it's very much getting the tone of the world and and the humor and and finding gameplay that would work within that and isn't just going to kind of be a you know complete contradiction to to the nature of the world. Hmm. That's a great answer. And I think beyond that, with things like film and TV, I think it's very much you finding the right partners, isn't it? The people who give the world the respect it deserves, really. It's very important, I think, to Narrativia and to the fans who, you know, Narrativia respect as well. Mm. Do you find, is there a tension between, I think you've done loads of work behind the scenes on adaptations, Rihanna. Is, is there a real tension between the work that needs to go into adapting something for a new medium and for, you know, a new audience in today's world, I guess, as well. Some of the books were written quite a long time ago now. Is there a tension between that and preserving what you see as the, you know, the fundamental tone and style that makes Discworld Discworld? I mean, there are always those challenges in in whatever you adapt because you're changing from one medium to another. And you're also expanding the world often, especially if you're you're kind of writing for something for TV, you're, you're kind of expanding on the story that's there. So you're kind of, but you're also, and sometimes kind of cutting out bits as well. You're trying to turn um, internal conversation of which there is a lot and the kind of narratorial voice into external conversation, external action. You're trying to kind of make it more suitable for a, you know, a highly visual medium. Uh, and you're sort of trying also cutting out things that just don't work so well in TV or film. And to be fair, going through my father's books and other authors' books, authors get away with a lot more um, <laughs> than uh, you know, uh, TV and film writers do, I think. Yeah, there's, there's a, you can make things work a lot easier on the novel page than you can on the screenplay page, I think. Mm. And so there's a lot of... You're, you're cutting things out and you're also expanding on things. And it's this kind of Frankenstein's monster creation where you're sort of pulling bits together, you know, you're expanding, you're cutting bits off and then you're like, you are sewing it together with the right thread. Mm. And that was something that I didn't realize going in, but I knew what thread to use. Like I knew how to pull things together and where to expand sort of naturally. So there, it felt like there was something in the DNA that helped me do that. But obviously I've adapted things before and 
yeah, it is all about what you what you keep in and what you cut out and how you kind of sew up the seams, really. And like the best feeling is when you're kind of reached the end of a project, being a, a film or TV, and you actually can't remember what was in the book <laughs> and what was in, in the screenplay. And it's less like, okay, that's that's good because it feels like it's merged quite well. And so that's always the point you're looking to get to. That's interesting because I was thinking as as an author that maybe screenwriters had it a bit easier <laughs> that that they could actually <laughs> skip over things that we've got to actually lay out in a lot of detail. I mean, I'm just picking at the plot of my latest book and my publisher has asked me to check the timeline. So I'm going through sort of working out the day everything happens on and how it kind of references back to the main timeline. Interesting. I think that might be the case, maybe if you're doing a, a, a screenplay from scratch, your own screenplay, but when you're adapting, you're sort of, mm. it's, it's very much its own beast. Mm. Yeah, it's a hugely different process and a real real skill in its own, I think. And knowing that you've done so much of it, I think gives us all as fans, like a real, we feel it's in very safe hands with you. If there is any more Discord adaptations, we know they're going to be great. Thank you. <laughs> For our final two questions, first one comes from Belle via Discord. Which part of Tiffany's advice do you find most applicable to your own life? And she adds, hopefully not the advice on fending off otherworldly forces. Mm. <laughs> Good question. Hmm. I mean, standing up for those that have no voice, uh, them who has no voices, which I guess is sort of granny aching wisdom, but it's sort of been filtered down through Tiffany. Yeah, and I, I think that's something that I think my father tried to embody and I've tried to embody as well. Yeah, it, it never hurts to keep a piece of string on you. I'm just saying there are so many uses for it. <laughs> um, so that is, you know, I, I'd say that is quite applicable to everyone. But yeah, like standing up for those that, for, for whatever reason, aren't able to do that or don't have much of a voice um, and is, is very important. Yeah, uh, that's so important. Just on a a worldwide basis really isn't it just looking around at everything happening today i mean it it is about standing up for those that don't have voices or voices that are being shut down i mean there was a lot of advice in there that we were thinking a great deal about and i was when i was writing the call section i was thinking a lot about sort of death and the way to actually sort of take death and sort of hoping that we could put something in there that maybe made people feel some comfort if someone had passed away yeah as well as trying to put in advice that people could take away it was also trying to offer a sense of comfort in other sections of the book as well but yeah the piece of string is is incredibly important and the uh keep a string bag in your knicker leg as well if you ever need to um you know make off with plenty from the buffet we had a launch party actually for um tiffany aiken's guide recently and uh there was a bit much food so we were actually <laughs> forcing everyone to do a nanny og and forcing food onto to everyone leaving the party <laughs> didn't we Ree? so a, a string a string bag in your knicker leg would have been very useful there <laughs> Mm. <laughs> we're, we're trying to get to use the tote bags to to take food home because we'd we'd had far <laughs> too much food and uh yeah which is better than not enough i guess yes um, yeah it doesn't sound like any of it went to waste it's very very oggish uh, attitude to that yeah so our final question is merging questions from bell via discord and from cat via facebook um what witching ability would you like to have and also there are several types of witch mentioned in the book for example edge which is which witch would you be and why so you can choose a witching power or a type of witch or both. 
Okay, I think the oggish power of listening is a great power, and it's one I kind of try and cultivate. Uh, and it, writing more about nanny og and oggishness um, gave me a big appreciation for uh, nanny og and and her particular power. But yeah, she she has turned kind of you know really listening into a into a superpower. Mm. As says Jeffrey in their own way. Yeah, yeah, they are. They they. On the surface, they don't seem that similar, but they are. Jeffrey is sort of a, a slightly more toned, toned down, kind of milder nanny og. They also remind me a lot of Johnny Maxwell from the Johnny mm. Maxwell books. Mm. He's a good listener. As well. Yeah, I had never thought of that. And then I heard you say that in an interview and I was like, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, repointed out, I was digging a lot into the books and doing an awful lot of research and triple checking everything I put in there so she's right I think there is a bit of a, a research witch in there and a bit of a, a mistake uh, as my background I went into teaching video games for 16 years so there is a bit of a teacher and research witch in me so I could be a mistake but yeah I think I'd like the power of just being able to do a good granny weatherwax stare just to be able to stare people down the way that she could without breaking that. I mean, she's she was staring down the sun in one of the books, wasn't she? To, the power of the stare would be something that uh, that I would really like to have. That is a good one. And I, I feel that. I think I'm a, a bit of a research witch at heart, if I was any kind of witch. What about you, Liz? I don't know what type I'd be, but I, I like the fact that the end goal is more important the story and the way you get there is not so much. So I think being able to navigate that well is something that I'd really want to be able to do. That that kind of brings us to the end. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to chat to you about the book. We're all crossing our fingers. It's such a tremendous success. They let you write like 20 more um, because that would be amazing. <laughs> but you do have some other projects on the go. So Randy, you've just done a radio series with the BBC. Yeah, so that is called Mythical Creatures on BBC Radio 4. You can also get it on BBC Sounds as like a box set and also RSS and it's up on BBC Sounds and RSS in perpetuity. So you should be able to listen to it wherever you get your podcasts, anywhere in the world, I think. Nice. I can confirm that you will find all 10 episodes of Mythical Creatures in your favourite podcast app or directory. And it's great fun. Rihanna travels all around the UK talking with local storytellers and folklorists about everything from giants and dragons to selkies, kelpies and red caps. Rihanna's introduction to each episode really sets the scene. The locals narrate their own favourite stories of each creature and there's plenty of discussion of the cultural significance of the creature and its stories too. Search for Mythical Creatures wherever you listen to Pratt Chat or follow the link in our episode notes. And Gabriel, you've, uh, your latest book is the first in the Rani Report series. You say you're working on the second one now? Oh, I just finished uh, final line edits for the second in the series and um, partway through the third, which, uh, which I do need to get done um, fairly swiftly, although it won't actually be out until 2025, the third in the series. But the first has just been named one of the Times Children's Books of the Year, which was uh, very, very nice. I've been working on that series with my husband, which has been a great experience, quite different to writing from Rihanna because we, we took chapters each, whereas um, Satish's contribution was uh, sort of very heavy on the planning um, and the editing. He is a 
brutal editor. It's really great. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's great and can cause a little bit of friction, but um, he will just say the stuff that you really need to hear. Um, and then I will sulk for um, a number of hours and then come back and say, yes, you're absolutely right. And changing that will fix the entire book. So um, yeah, so that's a series I'm having fun with is causing a little bit of marital strife but yeah it's, it's good fun and I'm currently working on a, a book for adults as well which is sort of a yeah I've never written for for grown-ups before so that's an interesting experience. Very exciting we'll, we'll be waiting for that with bated breath and just before we go is there anything you want to tease that you know, any, I know that you probably can't announce anything. There's been a, well, I mean, there's been a couple of fun announcements in the world of sort of Pratchett verse, like uh, the third season of Good Omens Ooh. has been confirmed. Uh, there's a, a new edition of the, the last hero coming out to match the new cover editions of all the other Discworld books. And there's going to be a year of Discworld celebrating sort of the 40th anniversary. We haven't got any details about that. Is there anything? And I know this is a big ask, but is there anything you want to tease? Like you don't have to announce anything, but do you want to drop any hints? about anything that's coming no because rob knows where i live <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair i mean i have that's very fair I, I have seen things that rihanna has been working on um in the background and you know all i'm going to say is she's very good so um yeah I, um rob knows where i live as well so i am <laughs> I'm going to shut up now. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we'll find out about those things in the fullness of time, as they say. But thank you so much both for your time today. And uh, the book's already a great success. We hope it continues to be so. Thank you for having us all. Thank you for having us. It's been absolutely lovely to chat. Thank you. And thank you, of course, to you as well, listener, without whom there'd be no point in us talking to anyone at all, because who would listen? I mean, we would, obviously. <laughs> yeah. We'd have a lovely time having a chat. But uh, yes, thank you so much. And if you want to support the show and keep it going, you can do that in lots of ways. You can tell people about us. You can follow us on all of the social media. You can leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Or like our subscribers do, you can support the show monetarily. If you want to find out more about that, you can head to pratchatpodcast.com and look at the Support Us page to keep us making many, many more episodes to come because... Even though we're at nearly 75 episodes, there are still many books and short stories and other things to talk about, mm. including what we're talking about next month in our February episode, Liz. Yeah, it is another thing. In fact, it is the Guards Guards board game, which I'm very excited about because I have not played it before. And Ben is very good at board games. So I'm just very like every time we play a board game together, I'm worried I'm going to embarrass myself by doing something real cringe or newbie. <laughs> So he's never made me feel that way, by the way. That's all coming from me. But I'm very excited because I love the watch and I love embarrassing myself at board games. Yeah, I think this is going to be really interesting because I don't actually know that much about this board game apart from the basic premise, which is that you are um, members of the, the City Watch and perhaps I think maybe some other characters as well in Ankh-Morpork trying to track down some of the spells that have gone missing from Unseen University. It's a bit of a romp running around the city trying to save the disc, as usual, from magical calamity. So it's not not me holding a toy dragon and trying to knock down buildings <laughs> that you've assembled. That's that's not the game? Is, is that what you're saying? No, unfortunately not. That Discworld game doesn't exist yet. Yet. Maybe yes. we should look into that. I don't know. But yes. Yeah, so BYO lighter. <laughs> 
no. It's getting, this is getting too real. Uh, but we, we are going to be discussing the Guards Guards board game. It's going to be great. Um, so if you've got any questions about that, please get them in. The hashtag for that next episode is Pratchat75. 75 mm. episodes, Liz. Can you believe it? The quarter quell. I know. Sorry, I've been watching the Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that the board game is not like that. Um, I think, I feel like I it's, suspect it won't be. No, I, unless I play it the way that I want to. <laughs> I think it is semi-cooperative. Like, I think I think it is competitive, but I think also you do kind of help each other. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out. I'm excited we'll find to find out because uh, I haven't played it. I haven't yet read too much about it. I'm excited. Uh, but we'll see you then in February. And until next time, remember, you don't find witchcraft. Witchcraft finds you. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guests Rihanna Pratchett and Gabrielle Kent. Pratchett is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. You can find us on social media as Pratchett or Pratchett Podcast, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchettPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat74. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.